Prior to Christmas, we uh, did a little study called An Original Christmas, and we looked at the ways that God interrupts our plans as he uh, carries out his purposes. We looked at Mary and how God certainly interrupted her. She didn't see that coming. We looked at Joseph, no anticipation on his part. That wasn't part of his business plan. And we looked at Simeon and what God did for him in the temple, how he interrupted his day. And then on Christmas Eve, we looked at what was going on in the lives of the shepherds as God was carrying out his purposes, what he chose to reveal to those individuals who were just going about their work. Now last week, we looked at what it appears to be the case for a strategic people in a strategic place in a strategic time, meaning his church, to be available for God to interrupt and to use us. Today what we're going to look at is what it looks like in Scripture for you personally, individually, right where you're at, for God to use you. And this is part one of two. I'll just tell you that up front. I'm going to do part one today and part two when I come back from Africa. You'll understand why as we get a little bit further into this. Now, I entitled this series, this very short series, Battle Ready, because I understand from the writings in Romans that Paul placed before us that we are individuals who are in a battle, even though it may not feel like it. Paul, in the midst of one of his greatest writings, the book of Romans, posed a question. It was a rhetorical question, but nonetheless a question. Let me show it to you on the screen. It comes from Romans 8.35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you have the King James Version of the Bible, it says that you're more than conquerors. NASB says you overwhelmingly conquer. They both mean the same thing. The Greek word, hooper nekao. Now, it's not a New Hope service if you can't hear some Greek language. So, even though we're going back to the Old Testament, I want you to see this Greek word because this is you. Do you notice that in that passage he said, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer? Who's the we? You. You are the hooper nekao. So I'm going to teach you that word this morning because it is a title that belongs to you, New Hope. So let's say this word together on three. It's a compound word, hooper and nakao. One, two, three. Hooper, nakao. It's a title that belongs to you as Christ followers. Now here's what's significant about it in our day and age. The people who own the company called Nike recognize the value of that name, nakao. Nike comes from the root word nakao, meaning someone who gains the decisive victory. A hooper nakao sounds like the word super because it is. Hooper nakao is talking about a super warrior. And that's what scripture calls you. Do you feel like a superhero today? Most would say not. Most would say, I don't even feel like a soldier, let alone a super soldier. Most would just say, I was happy to make it to church on time this morning. Okay? Why is that? 
It's because there's no bombs exploding outside our windows. You didn't drive by any POW camps on your way to here this morning. There isn't a present reality visible in front of us to remind us that we're in a battle. But nonetheless, you're in a battle. And it's a very real battle. Even though it may not feel like it, it doesn't make it any the less real. The battle rages all around you. And it's a clash of kingdoms. The kingdom and the war of Satan against the kingdom of God. Jesus said, he who is not for us is against us. It's black and white. You're either one or the other. And so the war rages around us. Peter was extremely conscious of this in the last part of his life. He wrote about what we're supposed to be conscious of. Let me show it to you on the screen. It comes from 1 Peter 5.8. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. See, Satan is in battle mode all the time. He's ready to pounce, but not necessarily the case of God's people because most of us don't recognize that we've been called to a battle. So what we want to look at this morning is what does it mean to be battle ready? So we're going to go to the Old Testament book of Judges to help you understand that. So if you want to go all the way back to the Old Testament, start at Genesis, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. That's where we're going to land. If you've got a pew Bible in front of you, your own Bible, open up there as well. You'll see the passages up on the screen so you can follow along. The book of Judges, chapter 6, is where we're going to be because we're going to look at a warrior by the name of Gideon and what God had to do to prepare him to be battle-ready to go to war. So today we're going to look at what it took for Gideon to be battle-ready, and when I get back from Africa, we're going to look at the actual battle itself, the war that he fought. Judges 17.6, you see this on the screen, tells us what was going on at this period of time. Everyone did as he saw fit in his own eyes. Can you imagine living in a period of time like that? You might say, I actually feel like I live in a period of time like that. I feel like maybe our country is sliding that way. That's what was going on in Israel in the time that Gideon was called forward. Everyone was establishing their own moral values. Now, the erosion of society doesn't happen overnight, does it? takes a long period of time. So what we're about to step into is to see that what's going on in Gideon's world didn't start with Gideon's generation. It happened before him, but it's on his watch, and he's got to do something with it. What's going on in our society today in the United States did not start with us. It started many years before, but it's our watch now, and so we're responsible because erosion never comes overnight. It comes in little bits and pieces. Here's what happened with Israel. They were extraordinarily prosperous as a nation. God had put his hand of blessing on them. They had escaped Egypt. They conquered lands. They expanded their territory. They raised crops. They were an agrarian society. They also raised livestock. And God increased them greatly because they followed his commands and his word. Throughout time, they became soft and lazy. They abandoned God's values eventually completely walking away from him. And as a result, God removed his hand of protection from them. They no longer had God's hand on them. That was their punishment. And where you step into Judges chapter 6, verse 1 this morning, the hand of God has fallen heavy on them. Go with me to the screen or into your Bible. 
Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. Now, this is a terror that Israel has never known before in its existence. Midian is a neighbor to their southeast. It surrounds and encircles them. Midian had formed an alliance with other nations to the east. The Amalekites lived there. So the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the sons of the east, Scripture says, the Arab nation. These are the descendants who live in Midian, who are coming against Israel. And Israel was so scared, they ran. As opposed to fighting, they took their shovels, they went up into the hills, they dug caves, and they hid. And when they crawled out of the caves and came back down, they found their land decimated. Go with me to verse 3. For it was when Israel had sown, meaning they planted, that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. So imagine you have a garden. You've worked all summer long. You've planted and you're ready to harvest. You want to bring in your crop because that's what you feed your family with. And at that point, your enemy sweeps in. I thought of the movie Bugs Life when I saw that. I thought about that animated version. Not sure if you've ever seen it, but it's about a whole bunch of ants in a colony that work all year long to harvest a crop. They bring the crop in only to have Hopper and his buddies show up. Now, Hopper is a big locust like Grasshopper, and when he sweeps in at harvest time, he demands payment. They will give to him whatever he wants because he's big. He's powerful. He's Hopper. He can do whatever he wants. So as I look at this, I'm thinking of Hopper. Go with me to verse 5. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come in like locusts for number. See, there's Hopper right there. Both they and their camels were innumerable, and they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. So the Midianites organized a coalition of surrounding nations, and they came against Israel. They brought the Amalekites and the sons of the east with them. And when Israel would run and hide, Hopper would sweep in and take all their grain, everything that they wanted, their oxes, their donkeys, their grapes, their olives, their wheat, their barley, leaving nothing for them. To the degree that we're told in the last part of that passage, Israel was brought very low. Now that's just not economically low. According to the Hebrew word that's used there, they were brought low in their own sight emotionally. They were degraded. So it says a lot about their emotional state. So we see that Israel cried to the Lord as a result of this. The Hebrew word that's used there is zakah. It's not going to be on the screen, but it's in your notes. It means to shriek publicly, to cry out. So it's not just one person gathering together. This is a gathering of individuals, an entire assembly, who zakah before God. They're crying out because they want God to restore to them what they've lost. What are they looking for? They're looking for material restoration. They want everything that's been taken from them to be brought back. 
What God is about to bring them is not material restoration. God is going to bring to them his word because the goal is not merely to deliver them from the Midianites, but it's to root out the unbelief and the evil that's made it into their society. So go with me to verse 7. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian, verse 8, the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. Oh wait, they're looking for a warrior. They're under the the boot of Midian. They're crying out to God for restoration and God sends him a prophet. What does a prophet do? A prophet brings the word of God. So God's sending him his word, verse 8. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, it was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. There appears to be no gap whatsoever. They ask, God responds. But do you notice there is not one single word of comfort from God? Nothing uttered to say, oh, it's going to be okay. See, that's a mistake. God is bringing to them reality, a check for them. He hears the cry of distress. He instantly responds. The answer begins to come at once, but they're not instantly going to get what they've asked for. Why? Because the blessing of God always comes with obedience. Obedience first, Blessing second. So if you're praying for God's blessing, make sure your obedience is in line because we should be praying that God would help us to be obedient to him because blessing is a natural following of obedience. God says, you've rejected me. You have not obeyed me, so let me remind you who you are and what I've done for you to bring them back into line. Now, in the eighth invasion, seven years have gone by, seven invasions, seven growing seasons, Seven takings, now the eighth invasion comes, and God calls a farmer by the name of Gideon to step up to the plate. Verse 11, then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, and his son Gideon was beating out wheat in a wine press in order to save it from the Midianites. So Gideon is at the peak of a season. He's labored, he's produced He's raised a crop for his family. He's ready to feed them. He's been out riding his John Deere tractor all summer long. And he's ready to bring that harvest in. He wants that crop. And he's harvesting wheat. But he can't take it to the normal place, the grain elevator for processing. We find him, if you look at the passage, in a wine press. What's he doing in a wine press? He's beating out wheat in a wine press. Now grain, when it's threshed, The head is removed from the stalk. The stalk is thrown away. That's just straw. What remains, the grain, is taken by the farmer to a very high place, a hill. And on that hill where the wind is blowing and the breeze can be felt, the farmer throws the grain up into the air. And the chaff is blown away. And the kernel settles to the ground because it's heavy. And it falls back on his tarp. And he's left with his wheat. He'll take it to his wife. She'll begin grinding it, turning it into flour. But why do we find him in a wine press? Because threshing on top of a hill gets attention and Hopper can see you 
and Hopper wants your wheat. So he's going to a wine press because a wine press is always carved in stone, which is down in the bottom of the valley where no one can see you. But the problem with a wine press is there's no wind down there. So you're throwing the wheat up in the air and it falls right back on you and it gets in your neck and it itches and it's not working the way it's supposed to. And now it's time for God to interrupt his business plans. Gideon is busy. He's doing what we do. He's doing business. His third quarter earnings had been horrible. The commodities market is slamming him. And the fourth quarter isn't looking much better. So he really doesn't have time for an interruption. And while he's preoccupied doing business, another messenger shows up. But this time it's not a man. We're told that it's an angel of the Lord. Verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Now don't those words seem to be out of line with the actions of Gideon? I'm thinking if I'm Gideon, I'm looking around saying, Who are you talking to? Valiant warrior. I don't feel like a valiant warrior. Actually, the Hebrew words that are used here, they're also in your notes. Gibor Heheel means powerful champion. It's the same phrase that's used of Joshua when he went to war for God. The same phrase is used of Gideon here. It's applied to fighting men. How could he be addressed as a mighty warrior? He's hiding in a wine vat. Now, the last thing he needs is to have someone stop in and cause him to lose productivity. He really is focused on what he wants to do. He has no clue how long the messenger has been sitting there. Apparently, the messenger from God kept himself invisible until he wanted to be visible. And he allowed himself to be seen. Go with me to verse 15. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord which is a polite title, it's Adonai, it's just a a general title. If the Lord, that's where he uses capital L, that means Yehovah, if Yehovah is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Utter dejection. Can you feel it? Every word that breathes out of his mouth. I hate my life. Where is this God? Now the first thing I'm going to point out to you is he's wrong. God did not abandon Israel. Israel abandoned God. But his perspective is skewed. He knows what God has done in the past, but the present reality forms a contradiction in his mind. Blessing is really, really hard to recognize in the absence of material prosperity. And that's the case for Gideon. So he's got a natural question. Where? Where are all his wonders? And Gideon's a man with attitude. He's developed a disgust for his circumstances. And it doesn't take much to draw him out. Go with me to verse 14. The Lord looked at him and said... Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? Did you ever notice that God never bothers to mess around with small talk? It goes right to the heart of the issue. Very, very direct. Gideon's complaining. God doesn't respond to his complaint. God's response is always penetrating and deliberate. 
there's something very significant that happens in this look. If you don't mind circling in your Bible, I would circle the word looked because it has a specific meaning. It's the word pana. So let's envision this. Let's say that these little trees here are mighty oak trees, okay? So the angel's sitting over here. And Gideon's on the threshing floor throwing his weed up in the air. Apparently at this point, they have not made eye contact whatsoever. Gideon's doing his business this guy's talking to him, but in such an elevated fashion that Gideon refers to him with the honorary title, my Lord, small l, Adonai. What's going on here when we're told that God looked? The Lord looked at him, the word panah. It has a literal physical meaning, meaning they made eye contact. God turned and looked at him. There's something in the piercing glare of God upon your life, the smile of God. His eyes are gleaming, but he looks straight into Gideon's heart and says to him, have I not sent you? Go in the strength that you have. What's the strength that he has? God's presence. It's the same promise he gave you, church. Jesus in Matthew 28, go into all the world, tell all the nations about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I am with you. It's the same sending. God's saying, I'm with you. That's what he's saying to Gideon here. Am I not sending you? Let's look at Gideon's response, verse 15. He said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. Manasseh is the tribe that he belongs to of the 12 tribes of Israel. I'm the least in my family. Why do we always feel the need to remind God of what we cannot do? I don't know why. It's human nature. It's a great temptation. I suppose we're trying to talk our way out of it. Now, Gideon only told part of the story. Yep, he's the baby of the family, and his tribe is the smallest, but here's what he left out. His daddy had built an altar, an idol, to Baal, B-A-A-L, Baal. So we've got Gideon living in a household where people are worshiping false gods. The whole nation had turned their back on God. Gideon's family included. So that's where you find this setting right now. When he says, I am the least of these, he also knows there's sin in his own household. Are you there right now? Are you right at that point where you would say, God will never use me. I'm the least of these. I'm the most insignificant. Why would he use me? That's the Satan speaking to you. That's not God. Because God is interested in using you no matter where you're at. Gideon is covered with shame and humiliation. It's just smoldering in his mind. He's threshing his wheat in secret, trembling at every turn. He's afraid Hopper's going to swoop in, constantly on the alert. He's afraid as long as he thought of himself as only a wheat thresher. He has no spirit, no hope, no sense of mission. God wants us to have a sense of purpose, a sense of mission. So the warrior must be awakened within him. That's why he calls him a valiant warrior. Here's the truth. In God's work, 
It does not matter your social standing. All that matters is that God's hand is on you and that he wants to use you. That's what scripture tells us. God's hand is all you need. I better get an amen out of that. Okay, verse 16. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. Now this is the first time he's ever heard this news. What news? That Midian can be defeated. They're a powerful country. And he's being told they can fall. And not only will they fall, Gideon, they're going to fall as one person. It's just going to be wiped out. You're going to conquer them because I'm going to be with you. Verse 17. I want to explain to you verses 17 through 24, but let me just read a couple of verses to you first. So Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring out my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I will remain until you return. Stop right there. Later today, when you get a chance, read verses 17 through 24 because we're not going to go through the whole thing right now. I'd like to move forward with the story into the nighttime activity. But here's what I want you to understand. Don't read it now. Wait. Okay. Look, look up on, I know it's human temptation. Okay, when you look up on the screen, every time you see the word your or you, you see it's a capital Y. It's at this point that Gideon realized who he's talking to. Capital Y represents the authority figure. So even the translators of the Bible understood that Gideon knew who he's talking to at this point. And so he's now in the position where he's going to make an offering. He wants a sign from God. So you understand that when you move forward, what's going on there? Gideon understands who is speaking to him. But go forward with me now to verse 25 so we see the response to all of this, the nighttime activity. Now on the same night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. Verse 26, and build an altar to the Lord, your God, on top of the stronghold in an orderly manner, and take a second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. So the same night, the night after this event of the angel showing up, God's going to strike while the iron is hot. I want you to notice in verse 25 what the angel said specifically to him. You're going to tear down the altar of Baal and Asherah because it's in your dad's own front yard. You've got to start dealing with the sin that's in your own camp. So God's pointing to the real problem. This is what put them in bondage in the first place. They abandoned God. So God's saying, deal with the sin in your own life first, and then I'm going to call you to battle. He's pointing out the real issue because it's much more serious than the domination of Midian. It doesn't matter that they're taking their wheat. That's a material loss. What matters is what is their heart aligned with. I want to be very clear at this point right here. We are people under grace. We don't have to wait for our lives to be perfect to come to God. God accepts us as we are. We're talking salvation at that point. God receives us because of grace. But in order to use us, he wants us to deal with the issues going on in our life. And we're talking about repentance there. 
repenting for the sin that creeps in. So here's what God's saying to Gideon. I will restore you and I will use you, but you're going to follow my way. Now here's what archaeologists have told us about the Asherah pole. This is really important to the story. Think of a totem pole, like up in Washington State, that you might see some of the Native Americans use, or maybe in Alaska where the Eskimos still carve totem poles. That's somewhat like an Asherah pole. Only on the Asherah pole, they would carve images of women because they believed the Asherah pole to represent the fertility god, small g. The Baal altar, B-A-A-L, L part on the end always represents God, small g in the Hebrew language. So Ba represents what they're worshiping, the God of Baal, meaning the God of the earth, the grains, the rain. So what we have here are people who are worshiping the planet, very focused on this false God. And in the altar of Baal, they always carve the image of a bull, the face of of a mighty steer. That was what they worshiped. The animals, the earth, the livestock. So these individuals are being told here specifically. Gideon is being told, you're going to tear down these images to the other God. You're going to use the wood from the Asherah pole as firewood on the new altar that you're going to build to me. And you're going to use your daddy's champion steers to pull down the altar. Uh, Let me help you picture this. Imagine taking the image of any false world religion around the world, taking it to your next church barbecue and starting the fire at the church barbecue with that image. That's how politically incorrect. this, This setting is totally incorrect. And we're looking at this God saying, I want you to destroy this imagery that has crept its way into your life, into your world. Deal with it. For the people who worship Baal and Asherah, this is the ultimate slap in the face. This is the ultimate insult saying, you have steered my people away. So God wants them to pull down the altar and they're going to rip out the stones. How big does this altar have to be to use two bowls to pull down the stones? Two full-size bowls, plus you're going to see in a moment, 11 men. Why take this action? Why not just build a new altar to God and begin worshiping him? Why take this kind of an action? It is not possible to succeed by merely talking about how bad evil is. In order to remove it, it must be exposed, it must be challenged and overthrown, completely removed. So we're talking about wrong practices in our life, the things that creep in, sinful behavior, God says, deal with it. It's an aggressive action. Remove it from your life. But that's only half of it. The other half is this. Once you remove whatever sinful item has crept its way into your life, you have to replace it with something else because it's just a void at that point, waiting to be replaced. David understood this. King David committed adultery with Bathsheba, After he confessed to God what he did, sleeping with another woman who was not his wife, after he repented of that, came back to God and confessed it, he wrote this in Psalms 51.10. Look with me on the screen. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. See, David's not asking for a garage sale heart. 
He's asking for something completely new, a brand new heart. God, give me a new heart. I want a new passion for you. I repent of my sin and I want to move forward. He knew he had to replace that sinful behavior with something new. Now let's move forward. Gideon understood that Baal worship was really popular. It was the most popular worship in the land. Everybody was doing it. And by obeying God, he's going to be risking his life. He's putting his own life on the line. So while the city sleeps, everyone's at rest. Gideon wakes up 10 of his best men and he marches up to the altar. And this is the turning point in the fight. He's going to carry out everything that God has called him to do to the letter. Not fudging on anything. He's moving forward following God's plan and it's a bold action. Go with me to verse 27. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him. And because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, he did it by night. This is not a brave man. He doesn't know he's a hooper nikao. He doesn't feel like a super warrior. He's not ready to stare death in the face. He does, however, have a greater fear of God than he does of man. So he's willing to do what God called him to do. So let's place ourselves mentally back in that city at that time. The sunrise starts to come up in the east. You wake up in your household. Morning light is beginning to permeate through the air. You smell something in the air. Huh, somebody's having a barbecue. The men of the city begin to wake up and they step outside and they say, I smell steak. Where's that coming from? They all gather in the city square and they realize, wow, who did that? The altar to their God has been demolished. The Asherah pole has been turned into firewood to burn the bull on, the sacrifice to God. They're furious. It's with amazement they see that their God, small g, has been wiped out. And they want to know who did it. The ashes of daddy's prized bowl are still on the altar. Gideon's fear proves correct when you go to the next verse. This is where it begins to wrap up. Verse 28. When the men of the city arose early in the morning... Behold, the altar of Baal was torn down, and the Asherah which which was beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar which had been built. They said to one another, Who did this thing? And when they searched about and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, did this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die. For he has torn down the altar of Baal, and indeed he has cut down the Asherah which was beside it. Now Gideon did it, no doubt, but apparently one of the guys that worked with him ratted him out. Somebody let him know. But we see the reaction of the townspeople is fury and rage. They really do want to kill him. It takes courage, church, to stand against the tide of society. That's all going this direction when God says go this direction. It takes courage to stand against the tide of your own household 
if everyone else is involved in sinful activity and you decide to take a stand and say, no more. I'm not letting that video image stream into my house anymore. I'm not letting that internet site on my computer anymore. I'm not letting those magazine subscriptions come into my home. It takes courage to take that kind of a stand. And yet that's what we see going on here. Gideon's life hangs by a thread until his daddy steps up to the plate. There's an interesting transformation that takes place here. Go with me to verse 31. This is the last part. But Joash said to him, said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you deliver him? Whoever will plead for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, notice small g, let him contend for himself because someone has torn down his altar. Therefore, on that day, he named him Jerubbabel. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he had torn down his altar. So the entire city is opposed to Gideon. They want to kill him. And out of the ashes, a newborn hooper stands forth. A super warrior. A new one who recognizes now that God has called him forward. A hooper nekao. One who can vanish and get the victory. What has he done? He stood against the powers of evil. He stood against spiritual wickedness in high places. Things that oppose the work of God. And he's toppled the forces of power because God called him to do it. Now, it's really ironic that instead of the people saying, this God, small g, is going to deliver us from Midian, they actually want to execute someone who's wiped out their God. I mean, how weak is that God, small g? that they need people to defend it. And Daddy apparently doesn't believe that this God can even defend himself because he says, hands off my son. If this God is so powerful, let him defend himself. At this point now, the story turns, and this is where we're going to pick up when I come back from Africa because it's time to make war. God now has a soldier ready to call him onto the battlefield. Here's where it ends, verse 33. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons of the east assembled themselves and they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. So the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Oh, the one who considered himself the least of these. The one who said, I'm a wimp. You don't want me. Is now the Hooper Nakao whom the Spirit of God is resting on. The power of Jehovah has settled on him. Why? Why did that happen? Because he took the action to clean up his own life first. He's dealing with the sin in his own house. And now God can use him. Now he's about to go to war for God. Gideon, if he doesn't watch out, is in danger of looking like a superhero, beginning to flex the muscles. He doesn't look like the Incredible Hulk yet but you can see a little glint in his eye. There's a recognition that God's calling him out. That's where we're going to pick up next week. He's still got some time left in boot camp, but God's going to work through him. Here's where we began this morning. We read in Scripture that God calls us this, Romans 8.35, we overwhelmingly conquer the hooper nikao. Gideon could not believe that was true in his life 
because the troubles that surrounded him seemed to be more powerful than the God he served. And it precluded all hope. Why? Because his hesitancy was this. His hesitancy was for this reason. He looked at his own abilities as opposed to what God could do through him. You serve the King of Kings. Jesus Christ has called you forward to work for him. Your strength is not in yourself. It's in your God whom you serve. So here's the two things I want you to remember this week as you go forward. First of all, number one, recognize. Recognize that the circumstances around you are evident of what's going on in your life. Do not blame the circumstances, but recognize that if you don't change the circumstances, there are consequences. Here's the way my grandpa used to say it. If you always do what you've always done, you'll always be what you've always been. You get that? If you always do what you've always done, you'll always be what you've always been. If you don't change the circumstances, if you don't deal with the sin in your life, you're going to constantly be battling against that, and there's consequences. So God calls you to deal with that first. And number two, remember. Remember who it is who has called you on to the battlefield. It's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. No one can defeat him. So we should start by saying, God, just examine me. See if there's any wicked way in me. That's what David said. I would say the same thing. I often ask God, God, will you examine my heart? So I'm going to pray with you right now. I'm just going to ask that God would seal this in us. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and do that with me? Let's ask that God would examine our hearts so that we can move forward in his strength. Father, we, we are, we're just assembled before you as individuals who want individually to be used by you. We recognize that you are the strong one, we are the weak, one, weak ones, and we need you. So, Father, we would begin by saying right at this point, in the middle of January, we'd put our stake in the ground, and we'll begin by saying, Father, would you examine our hearts and reveal to us if there's any wicked way? God, I pray that for every single individual in this auditorium myself included, none of us is above sin. Father, you have conquered sin. It's in your strength that we move forward. So we come to you in the shed blood of Jesus, standing on the promise that if we will confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and you'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we claim that promise. We desire to move forward in your strength. So I ask God that you would seal these promises in us this week, this afternoon, whatever we take on tomorrow as we move through the workday, the things that we don't even know we're about to encounter. Remind us, God, that you're the one who called us onto the field of battle. We take confidence in knowing that you only want the best for us. So Father, we come before you with open hands and open hearts saying, do your work through us. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Have an excellent week, church.